If you have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter this morning. The book of 1 Peter, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, there is one under one of the chairs in front of you. And you will find our text on page 1014 this morning. On page 1014. 1 Peter chapter 1. In the last few months, more than 70 Christians have been arrested in Iran in a large, well-coordinated strike. A 17-year-old girl who converted to Christianity from Islam was shot to death in an apparent honor killing in Somalia. Seven house churches were forced to close in West Java, Indonesia by Muslim extremists who claimed the buildings were being used for, quote, illegal church meetings. Christians in Iraq suffered a series of church bombings. Experts believe that this will prompt the region to be virtually evacuated of that nation's Christian population. In fact, already approximately half of all Iraqi Christians have fled the country. Finally, the oppression of Christians in Egypt, the most populous Arab nation, intensified with a January 1st bombing of the Saints Church in Alexandria. 21 believers were killed and another 100 injured. This and so much more is the reality of Christianity in the 21st century. In fact, it is in unprecedented numbers that Christians are being persecuted and even martyred today for their faith. They are being killed not because of their ethnicity. They are not being killed because of their political leanings, but simply for confessing Jesus Christ is Lord. And though this is happening in record numbers today, it is not a new phenomenon. It was not long after Christ himself uh, came into this world and died for sinners and rose back again from the dead and ascended to the Father that in fact persecution began to break out among his people. You can read about that in Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9. In fact, the letter we have before us this morning that we will look at was written very specifically to Christians who were beginning to experience this very thing, suffering for their faith. And the question we want to ask as we look to this book this morning is, how should we respond to such circumstances? How do we respond to suffering and persecution for our faith? How do we, reserve, how do we respond to suffering in general? This morning what we want to see is the answer the Apostle Peter gives, specifically that Christians can persevere both in holiness and with joy because they have an assurance of their present and future salvation. That's what we want to see this morning from 1 Peter. Uh, I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the Word of God to us this morning. Blessed be to God. When writing to suffering Christians, Peter focuses on the hope we have in Christ. And he shows how that hope can sustain us in times of difficulty and suffering, even persecution. So this morning, we want to focus in and understand as best we can what this hope is, why we can have it, and how practically it sustains us during difficulty and suffering. So the first thing that we want to see is this. We want to see that the basis of our hope, the basis of our hope is God's election. God's election. In the opening verses, Paul lays out the basics of this letter, not only where it's going and who's going to be reading it, but he also lays out some very profound truths. In verse 1, we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And we are told that this letter was written in terms of its uh, physical location. This region of Asia Minor that is now modern day Turkey. This is where Peter is writing to. But more than that, he doesn't just tell us the physical location. He tells us the spiritual identity of these people. They are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, having come through weeks and weeks and months and months of the Old Testament, hopefully that that language uh, pops in your mind of Israel's time of exile in the dispersion from the promised land. You will remember that they were cast out of Israel, cut off from the land of promise in the, the land of Babylon, waiting to be restored in their home. And here Peter is picking up that language and applying it to those that he is writing to. And this is a crucial theme throughout the whole letter of 1 Peter. Now understand, Peter is not saying that these are literally Jews scattered from the promised land. See, how do we know that? Well, we know that from reading uh, the whole book. Later in chapter 1, he says that these Christians were formerly ignorant of the things of God, having inherited futile ways from their fathers. In chapter 4, he describes their former lifestyle in terms of drunkenness, sexuality, and idolatry. Clearly, this could not be said of Jewish people. Even if they were not believers, uh, this would not have been the way in which their lives would have been characterized. What we see are Gentiles who have had no knowledge of God that have been brought into the people of God by the work of Christ, a Savior for all humanity, Jew and Gentile together. Furthermore, since these, Jew, these Gentiles are now part of God's people, they are part of the church, they are to be considered, they are to consider themselves as exiles in this world. What does Peter mean? Peter means this, all around them is the same culture they were saved out of. All around them is this culture of idolatry and godlessness, a world in which Peter says, now you are strangers. This is not your life anymore. You are to be strangers to that and so over and over again throughout this letter, Peter says, that kind of lifestyle isn't yours anymore. You are to think of yourselves as travelers, as sojourners, as strangers in a foreign land. Now, some of you have traveled to foreign lands before, to foreign countries. 
And you know that even in ones that are similar to ours, even those uh, as in like Western Europe or Canada, there is still an ethos, there is still an, an atmosphere to that culture that makes you feel a stranger to it. It feels alien to you. Now, one thing that has to be said is that regardless of where you go, uh, people are people. There is a great commonality to all of humanity, regardless of the culture. We all live, we all work, we all have families, and we all eventually die. And those kind of common major benchmarkers uh, means there's more commonality than there are ever differences, and yet sometimes the differences are striking. Sometimes they're even off-putting. Maybe not be right and wrong, you just go and you feel like this is not home. I remember when I was in Peru, one of the things that we were traveling with a large group of people who all spoke English, there was nothing in print that was in English unless we brought it with us. And so, you know what? Unfortunately, all I had was my Bible. That meant I read a lot of my Bible those three weeks, and that was a good thing. But the last day before we flew out, we were in Lima, and someone left behind a copy of the USA Today in English. And let me tell you, I never read the newspaper like I had that day. Just poor, I mean, stuff I didn't care anything about. It was just English. It was home. It was natural. Not trying to convert Spanish in my head. You go to Niger, and what we found there was a culture in which at the end of the day, what they were more concerned with was not what they got done, but who they talked to. I mean, that's just not us, is it? I mean, can you imagine working and handing your time card at the end of the week and telling your boss, no, I didn't get hardly half of that stock moved around like you wanted me to, but I'll tell you this, all but three people on my team I got caught up with and found out how their life was going. You wouldn't work there very long, would you? Uh, that's just not our culture. And, and, and that's the kind of imagery that Peter is invoking here, and yet, and yet he says it is more than that. It is not just those kinds of indifferent, they do it differently there than we do kinds of things, but rather it is massive differences that result in life and death eternally. He is talking about spiritual differences that come in being people who worship Christ alone and being those of an entire world system that lives for itself worshiping pagan gods and money and their own bellies, virtually anything other than the one true God. Here it is a matter of right and wrong. It is a matter of living godly lives according to the standards God himself has set. And so Peter will tell them in chapter 2, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't live the way you used to live. But as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And this, of course, raises the question, how did they come to be God's people? How did they go from being godless pagans, godless in the sense, not that they weren't religious, not that they didn't consider themselves spiritual, but that they did not know the one true and living God? How did they go from being godless people to living as God's children. Peter explains how this change occurred and how it also serves as our basis for hope. Peter says they are not just exiles, they are elect exiles. That is, they are the objects of God's choosing. This is how they came to be awakened to their sin and their need for forgiveness. This is how they came to see the glory of Christ and believe in Him. It was by God's sovereign electing love and notice how Peter describes this election in verse 2. They are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience in Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. First he says our election has come by the foreknowledge of God. Now some will, will look at that word foreknowledge and they will say 
This is what election means. Election means that God looks down through time, as it were, and because He is all-knowing, knowing past, present, and future, knowing not just what will happen, but even what could happen, God sees who will believe, and so they become objects of His election. Well, God certainly does know the future, doesn't He? And yet it is not just a crystal ball-like power. God does not just simply see the future. He ordains the future. God knows what will happen because He has determined it will be so. And so, for instance, in the Old Testament, God speaks of His knowing His people in terms of covenantal love, His promise and commitment to Him. And this association is picked up in the New Testament as well, not just implicitly, but explicitly. So that even just a few verses down, Peter says, Christ Himself was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Did, not, did God know Christ was coming to be the Savior of sins? Absolutely. But did He just know it? No. He ordained that it would be. Peter himself in Acts chapter 2 combines predestination and foreordination. He says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yes, God knows, but He knows because He has determined. He has ordained it to be. And so also with us, God doesn't just know who will believe. He ordains that we will believe. This is what... Paul means when he speaks of them being exiles by God's election. And he explains not only this election took place with the foreknowledge of God, but it takes place in the sanctification of the Spirit. This Holy Spirit is the one that makes the reality of God's election real in our lives by sanctifying us. Now I know that we often think of sanctification as that we think in a theological category. We've been told justification makes us God's people, sanctification uh, declares us to be God's people, sanctification makes us to be God's people. That is to say, in justification we are declared righteous, in sanctification we are made righteous. And that's good, but don't bring systematic categories always to the text, specifically with sanctification, because far more often the word sanctification in the Bible speaks to our conversion that initial setting aside, scooping us up out of this world of ungodliness and setting us into the people of God for His purposes. Yes, a life of holiness, uh, but that initial uh, drawing of God to faith in Christ. And that is what Peter, I think, is talking about here. It is this Spirit of God who effects, He brings into reality God's election by filling us with Himself giving us eyes to see that we might believe in Christ. And He'll talk about this more just a few verses later. So let's look at the third way that He describes our election. We have been elected by the Father, sanctified in the Spirit for, verse 2, obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Peter says God has been at work in their lives and so by implication the lives of every believer to bring about their obedience of faith in Christ which comes with our purification before God. Just as the sacrifices of the Old Covenant presented Israel cleansed before God, now it is the blood of Christ Himself that brings full and final and lasting cleansing from sin. Now the question is, how does that become the basis for our hope? How does that become the means by which we have a solid foundation for hope in the midst of suffering? 
Well, I think we can say a lot of things here, but let me just say one. It ultimately comes down to this reality. Our spiritual life, the reality of our salvation, does not rise and fall on us. It doesn't come down ultimately to us. Did God make us believe? No, we freely believed because He was merciful in opening our eyes to the truth that we were once blinded by sin. Yes, it is amazing grace. It is amazing grace because we were dead and we were blind and we were in chains and it is God who gave us life, who gave us sight and freed us from our sins. And therefore, and therefore we trusted in Christ. That belief did not spring from a fickle heart that blows hot and cold, faithful and unfaithful, depending on the day of the week or even the hour of the day, but rather that faith was born out of a divine work of grace in our hearts. So even on the bad days, even on the really bad days, when we're not just tempted to sin, but we fall headlong into sin, willful, open, disobedience to our Heavenly Father, should our first thought mean be, I've blown it? I've just lost my salvation? I've just made a shipwreck of my faith? Or do we have confidence that we can come before God because of the work of Christ and ask for forgiveness knowing that He has not cast us off as our children? You see, if salvation ultimately depended upon us and us having the ability to see and to think and to feel and to believe correctly, then we could never have an assurance of salvation. It would always be up to us to keep ourselves in. And yet, Peter says, no, God is the basis of our hope because it is by His sanctifying work in the Spirit, which has made reality the electing of the Father so that we would obey in faith towards Jesus Christ that we have salvation. We need not fear loss of our eternal relationship with God because He is the one in whom it ultimately rests. It is His sovereign initiative that brings us to Christ and therefore that serves as the basis for our hope in all things. And it's upon that basis that God also makes promises about our future life with Him. This is the second thing, the second truth we want to see this morning and that is this. The promise of our hope is future glory. The promise of our hope is future glory. God doesn't just tell us about the past conditions of our salvation, how we came to be saved. He tells us what it's going to look like in the end. He tells us where we are going. And this is important to us because, frankly, at ground level, it's hard to see sometimes, isn't it, where things are going. Someone I read drew out the analogy of this. Imagine somehow that uh, tonight uh, you did not watch the Super Bowl, but you saw who won. You saw the final outcome. You saw the score. And the next day your buddy, who also was not able to see it, but had recorded it, said, you want to come over and watch it with me. Now, you know how the game ends, but you've not seen every play. You've not seen how the touchdowns are made. You've not seen how the field goals are made. You've not seen the conversion points. You've not seen all those things that make up the minutia of the game, but you've seen the end. Likewise for us. Peter says, we, we don't see the day in and the day out. God does not always reveal, this is how I want you to go. I want you to turn to the left and, and to the right here and know this is what's going to happen. He doesn't tell us that, but he does tell us, this is where you're going. This is what waits for you on the last day. Peter begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with the sounding of praise. 
that we are to praise God for what He has done for us. In fact, all that we will see through, uh, well, we will, we'll stop at verse 9, but if you go all the way to verse 12, all of this is meant to evoke a sense of worship in us. Why should we worship God? Why should we praise Him? Because it's according to His great mercy that He has caused us to be born again. That's the first thing that Peter says. And again, he picks up this idea of the Spirit's work that he's just mentioned in verse 2. Those who claim the name of God have experienced the new birth, not because they have brought it about, but because God has caused them to be born again. We cannot take credit for our new birth. Peter even uses a passive verb, meaning God is the one who has done something to us. He has generated our spiritual birth. This is why he says this was done according to His great mercy. Think about it like this. Did you have a say in your physical birth? You know, I mean, speaking from experience at least, maybe it was different for you. I was not in embryonic form looking at a a day planner saying, I think I'll be born on May 9th, 1977. That sounds good to me. In fact, if that was the case, it was pretty cruel because that year, May the 8th, was Mother's Day. That should have been the day that I was born. That's the day my mom really would have liked to be born, but it didn't didn't happen that way. Why? I had no say in it. And frankly, neither did she, but that's a different story. Same thing with our spiritual life. Jesus said in John chapter 3, the wind blows, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going or even what effect it's going to have. Nevertheless, it comes, and when it does, it is clear that it is there. That's the same way with God's Spirit. We don't say, okay, to next Tuesday at 12, I'm going to be born again. It doesn't happen that way. God causes us to be born again by the sending of His Spirit as we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is the one who does it. Therefore, we are born again to a living hope. Why is it living? Because it's genuine. It's real. It isn't empty or vain. And specifically because it is tied, he says, to the resurrection of Christ. After dying on the cross, winning salvation for sinners, Jesus was buried. He was left for dead. But then just as he promised on the third day, he arose back to life. He didn't just come back to life like Lazarus did. He didn't just come back to life like Jairus' daughter did. He did not just come back to life like the the servant's uh, child uh, that Isaiah performed the miracle with. No, he came back with full, resurrected, glorified, prepared for eternal life with God body. That's how Jesus came back. And that means he is the first one to have ever come back from the dead in that way. A full, physical, spiritual, eternal resurrection. And yet it is because he is the one who first came back that way. Now we have the hope that we too will come back that way one day. You see, when we are baptized and the minister says... Buried in likeness and death and raised to walk in newness of life. That is not just the spiritual reality that we have, in some sense, been with Christ on the cross. That we have died to our sins. That we have been crucified with Him. But there is the promise that we have new life in Him. Not just spiritual life now that we enjoy and we love and we delight in. But future life. Resurrected life. Just as he came back from the dead, so though I will die one day, my body will be put in the ground, it will be in a box and long forgotten, but one day God will not forget. One day, just like Lazarus, Jesus will call out by name, come forth! And regardless of how insane and 
amazing that will look. The very DNA of my body will be woven back together, not in an imperfect way that will be corrupted again and imperfect and die, but in a glorified, resurrected body that I may spend eternity with my Savior in glory forever. Other ones, that is the hope that we have because Christ himself has given it to us. Now imagine the profound impact that would have had on these first readers. We've already said they're in modern-day Turkey, part of the Roman Empire. And though at this point Christianity was not formally illegal as far as Roman law was concerned, it was also not seen as a legitimate religion. What that means is that Christians had to face local and sporadic persecution, not just from people, but even from the government itself. In fact, several verses indicate within the book this is exactly what's going on even already as Peter writes this letter. And he is saying, remember what God has done for you in Christ. Remember that the suffering you're going through doesn't mean He's forgotten about you. It doesn't mean that because you're Gentiles, you're somehow less valuable than the Jews. He doesn't care about you. He's reminding them, remember, Christ died for you. He gave His blood for you. You were bought for God, not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the infinitely more precious blood of Christ. You are His people. Therefore, do not lose heart. You have been chosen by Him. You've been given new life by Him. And one day, you will be resurrected by Him. Therefore, have hope. Regardless of what happens in this life, there is a future glory that awaits us. Just as Jesus promised, one day we will experience the resurrection from the dead and it will be far greater than anything we experience here. Most of us have never experienced persecution for our faith the way that these first readers did, the way that hundreds of thousands, possibly into the millions of Christians today are suffering but part of what that means is that we should pray for them. Not just once a year, not just occasionally, but we should find ways to regularly lift up those brothers and sisters that we will spend eternity with. We do not know their names. We do not know their faces. Many times we may not even know their ethnicity, and yet they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Forever we will be around the throne giving worship together with the Lamb. How much more should we now pray for them that they would be able to remember the hope they have to endure suffering for His name? But more than that, though we may not experience intense persecution, all of us will, will suffer in some way for our faith. It may be that we have to quit a job. It may be we may be fired from a job. It may be that we lose a friend or a family member stops talking to us. But in some way we will suffer for the faith. Beyond even that, though, simply by living in this fallen, sin-damaged world, we will endure suffering. People will get sick. People will die. We will get sick. We will die. Car accidents will happen. Babies will be born dead, diseased. And because of that first sin, even today we will suffer. Perhaps you're sitting here and say, I've hard had, had hardly any suffering. Then as one person said, just hang around and wait. Because that's the nature of this life. All of us will be touched by suffering. And regardless of the circumstances, here is the common temptation in all suffering. To despair to the point of losing our faith in God. 
to believe He is no longer good, He is no longer loving, that He no longer cares about us, or that it's all lies. That's the one great temptation. The question is, how do we fight against it? The answer is very simple, as Peter himself even reminds us. We come again and again and again to the cross. That is the ultimate promise of God, that He loves you, that He cares about you, that even in suffering, He has not forgotten you. Why? Why is the cross so important in that way? Simply this, who suffered on the cross? Was it not your own Lord and Savior? And He was not simply suffering as one, a part of this normal, sin-stained world. No, He suffered in unimaginable ways as His own Father, now your Father, poured out the fullness of His wrath on sin for you on His Son. Jesus, though perfectly innocent, though guilty of nothing, not deserving the the slightest inconvenience, took more than just inconvenience, but damnation itself upon Himself at the cross. And He did that for you. Because He had to? No, the Bible says because He loved you. In the love of God comes the cross. And therefore, when we look and we see though we suffer, though we endure pain, though we experience hardship, we look to the cross and say, but Jesus suffered even more. He suffered it not because He deserved it, but He suffered it for me. And He suffered it for me as an assurance that God loves me. So though we endure suffering, we look to the cross and we are assured we have hope in Christ. We have an eternal hope in Christ. In fact, the hope that we have, Peter describes as being an inheritance. Notice how, notice how he describes the inheritance that we have. He says, what we have is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Think about the contrast there. Everything in this world will eventually become corrupted, it will be tarnished, it will grow dull in its beauty, or it will completely break down and fade away into nothing. Everything in this world is transient by nature. It is here today and gone tomorrow. It is tainted by sin and therefore is only finite in its existence. It is limited and will not endure forever. But the glory of our salvation is not of this world. Peter says, the inheritance we look forward to will never be corrupted. It will never be tarnished. It will never lose its luster. It will never end. Our inheritance is not of this world because it is kept for us in heaven by God Himself. And until that day, God has not forgotten you, even in the midst of suffering. Peter says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are even now being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Think about what Peter is saying there. Though you are enduring suffering, though you have not yet arrived with him in heaven, he is guarding you. The imagery is of warfare, of a garrison of soldiers surrounding the city to fortify it, fortify it against attack. Have you ever thought of God serving you in this way? God being for you this way? You know, every time you sing, a mighty fortress is our God, that's exactly what you're singing. You remember the line, Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same, 
and he must win the battle. Must is not like hoping, like, oh, he must win, he must win. No, it is a declaration. He will win the battle. Lord Sabaoth is simply Hebrew for Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies of heaven. We're not talking about the commander-in-chief of the greatest armed forces in the world, in the United States. No, we are talking about God Himself. Commander, not just, not just of His own omnipotence, but commander of the legion of angels in heaven, saying, I will not let you be destroyed. I will never so let Satan come against you. I will never let circumstances so come upon you that your faith would be devoured. I am guarding you. Peter himself knew what this was like. Do you remember Peter's testimony? Do you remember that he was the one who said, I will be with you to the end. I will never fall away from you, Jesus. And yet... Jesus said, yeah, you will. Yeah, you will. And then you remember the night that he was betrayed. Jesus told Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That is, wheat being sifted to remove the chaff. He wanted, he wanted Peter removed like chaff. Remember, this is the guy who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Yes, it is not an abstract confession, but it is Peter making the confession. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus has ordained he have a key role in building the church, and Satan says, I don't think so. I will have him. I will devour him. I will eat up his faith like a lion and some broken animal in the desert. He will not continue. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus told Peter he was making intercession for him so that though when his faith weakened and he turned away, Satan would not have his meal. His faith would not be broken, but he would endure. And he says, when all that happens, when you finally come to repentance and you turn back, go and strengthen your brothers. This is why Peter was able to both weep bitterly and yet return to God from his sin. For it was tears of repentance that came from him. Peter says, the same God who gave you faith as a gift of His grace also guard your faith so that you will endure to the end. And this promise of hope will not fail in this life, but will carry on into the next, a life of future glory. That's the promise of the hope that we have. The question is now, we have the basis for hope, we have the promise of hope, now how do we live in light of these things? And here we see the fruit of our hope. The fruit of our hope is joyful holiness. Joyful holiness. Holiness. Peter's readers had a difficult life. It was marked by suffering. But remember what he called them elect exiles. 
as we seek to live in light of the hope that we have, the first thing that we do is understand who we are. We are elect exiles. That is to say, we are not like those around us. We strive for holiness because the God who has saved us is a God of holiness. We fight against the culture, refusing to have our thinking, our living, our desires, and our loves molded to its ways. Instead, we stand against the world, bearing the stamp of the image of Christ on our very souls, remembering we are His spiritual brothers, God's spiritual children, a Adopted by Him. Yet what do we think of when we think of holiness? Think of those old guys in the the tall hats and the black suits with no smiles, right? We think of dourness. We think of depressingness. We think of no fun. We think of, you know, sitting in our house with the Bible open 24-7 and never doing anything. Friends, that's not a vision of holiness that's found in the New Testament. It's not even the vision of holiness those guys in the big black hats and coats actually had either. Peter calls us to, the Bible calls us to, holiness pursued with joy. Are we to abstain from the passions of our flesh that this world tells us every day, indulge, indulge, indulge? Yes! That doesn't mean that we never go out of the house. It doesn't mean that we just sit around looking depressed all day. We do it with joy. The question is, how do we do that? Again, Peter's readers are marked by suffering. And yet he tells them they should rejoice. Speaking of their God-given security of their future salvation, he writes, In this, that is in this hope, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says the future inheritance we have in Christ should give us joy even while we experience difficulties and sufferings in the present. Why? Because we understand that the trials we experience now are not meaningless, they're not accidents, they're not just happenstance, rather they are opportunities for us to be refined in our faith by God himself you see when you put gold in the fire as Peter explains the gold does not burn up rather all the impurities within the gold that are combustible burn up and what you're left with is purified gold he says if that's true of gold which in and of itself is perishable and one day pass away like the rest of this world how much more your souls by which your faith rises up to God If our focus is on Christ and our hope is in Him, then trials become the means by which we let go of this world and cling more closely, more tightly, more faithfully to Christ Himself. And that will bring us joy. The reason why we find holiness so hard and so depressing and we don't want to do it is because we've got a truckload of the world that we're trying to hold on to. I want to be holy. Then get rid of this. No, I like this. I want to be holy, though, then get rid of that. But, but I like that. I mean, I'm not a legalist, right? I can, I can do these things and still be a good Christian. And God says, just let go of those things. Let go of the world. Let go of those, 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 those fickle, transient little things that tickle your delight and come to me who will bring fulfillment to your soul. Pleasures forevermore, he says in Psalm 1611. Then you'll have joy. Understand. Things 
will be difficult. And Paul, or excuse me, Peter does not mean to lessen the pain of our suffering. He does not want us to think of it lightly or to treat it lightly. But what he says is, we can still know God. We can still trust God. We can still rejoice in God through our sufferings. You know, I've told you before about a friend that I had in college and the person's response to any kind of difficulty, and she had a lot. For about a year, she would just smile and say, His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Well, what she said was true. But the smile betrayed the fact she had not come to grips with the suffering in her life. You see, sometimes you call out in faith, your grace is sufficient, but you do it with wailing cries of pain and anguish and tears streaming down your face. I mean, Peter says, does he not? You have been grieved by various trials even for a little while. That's not a kind of pie in the sky. Everything, ah, everything's fine, everything's fine. No, it, you feel the weight of those things. You don't deny it. And yet you still come through with your faith secure. Trials can hurt, but Christians know there is an inheritance that awaits them in the world to come. And at the center of that inheritance is Christ Himself. Peter says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In the midst of difficult temptations to sin and terrible sufferings of life, Peter says the true Christian continues to look to God whom he only sees by faith with love and lives a life with joy. Why? Because what makes heaven heaven? Is it no pain? Is it seeing loved ones? Is it never having to, to eat anymore but just eating for pleasure? Is it the fact that you'll live forever? If all those things you said, yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to in heaven, you missed it. You've missed it. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. You read Revelation, all of the worship of heaven is focused on God and the Lamb. And so much more with us when we come to the cross and we are just, are just avalanched with the amount of love that He has poured out to us. The, the joyful response is love in return and a longing to see Him on that day. The fact that Christ will be there is what keeps us moving. Even today, unlike Peter, we have not seen Christ, but we love Him because we believe He has loved us and He, has gave, he gave His life for us. That kind, of, that kind of reality not only evokes deep love in us, but also deep faith. Faith that God Himself is guarding us, that God will enable us to endure, giving us all that we need to persevere because He has already given us Christ. He's already given us the very best. Why would he hold anything back? You know, this past week when I was at this pastor's conference, I was reminded of a young woman named Karen Watson who served as one of your Southern Baptist missionaries in Iraq. She was killed for her faith on March 15, 2004. Before she left, Karen uh, gave her pastor a sealed envelope with the words, Open in case of death. And there was a letter which in part said this, when God calls, there are no regrets. I try to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to Him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. I was not called to comfort or to success, but to obedience. There is no joy 
outside of knowing Jesus and serving Him. Loved ones, that kind of endurance, that kind of joy only comes when you believe the salvation bought by Christ is worth more than anything in this world. Then you can live as elect exiles, pursuing joyful holiness even in the midst of suffering. Let's pray that God would work that work in our hearts today. Father, we are amazed at your love for us. And yet, Father, so often the things of this world begin to blind us to that. God has often been said that Satan has two main weapons in his arsenal against us, pleasure and pain. That God, he tries to entice our hearts with things that we believe, we falsely believe, will give us more pleasure than God. And Father, He tries to break our faith by inflicting pain upon us. Father, we pray this morning that we would not succumb to either, but especially to the pain that comes into our lives. For we would look and know that You have given us an assurance of hope, not because of what we have done, not because of our faithfulness, but because of the offering of Your own Son, Jesus Christ and that we have loved you because you have first loved us. Father, may that strengthen us, may that encourage us, so that whether or not we are enduring difficulty and suffering, we will pursue holiness before you, and we will do it with joy. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.